Welcome to the Just Larson Show, where I interview innovators and leaders. Today on the show, I'm excited to have Charlie O'Donnell, uh, founder of Brooklyn Bridge Ventures. Charlie, thanks for doing this. Happy to be here. So uh, for people not familiar with the fund, can you give us a quick overview? Yeah, sure. So Brooklyn Bridge Ventures is a solo general partnership. I started it about uh, 10 years ago. I've been in venture capital since 2001. It's kind of funny, actually, at one point this year, um, I think sometime in August, I hit my point at which I'd spend half my life in venture capital, uh, which is kind of hard to believe. But I um, was very fortunate to get some early exposure at a um, corporate pension fund, which was one of the largest institutional limited partners in the asset class. And I spent some time as the uh, first analyst at Union Square Ventures when they opened up their fund uh, back in 2004. I helped open up uh, First Round Capital's New York office back in 2009 and went out on my own about a decade ago to make uh, co-lead and lead investments in pre-seed and seed stage deals in and around New York City. I grew up in New York, and so I'm very, very fortunate that the ecosystem kind of grew up around me and I didn't have to move to go find startups because, um, you know, back when I was at Union Square, there wasn't a ton of technology investment going in, in New York City and, and, and now it's a huge ecosystem. So I feel super fortunate to be here in this geo. And I do just about any kind of deal you could name, everything from B2B SaaS to CPG to food to healthcare. Um, the only real two criteria is that the company is in the New York City area and that they've raised less than 750K uh, cumulatively in previous rounds. I, I really liked the title I saw, I think on your social media or on your bio about uh, New York City's most accessible venture capitalist. Am I getting that right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I really try hard for that. I think, I mean, first of all, I accept just about any speaking engagement or participation that I can in the community. And um, I, I really try hard to um, to answer every question that I can, uh, try and respond to all the emails. Uh, and I do a number of things. Uh, for example, I do this session called Not a Pitch. And Not a Pitch really, um, you could have come up with the idea that morning. It's fine. You give me a minute about what you're up to, and I'll give you a couple minutes back. And the idea being really about all of this accessibility is, is sort of two things. One is VCs have an information advantage, right? We've seen nine attempts at solving that very same problem that you are trying to solve now. And many of those attempts have not made the light of day. And so if you're a founder, this is super help helpful information for you because you're poking around Google, you're asking people, but you don't really get to see all of the tries at this and you don't necessarily get the insider story of, of why it worked or, or why it different. So my hope is that if nothing else, you come to that not a pitch meeting and I could say, hey, if, if you're going to be serious about actually pitching this, you need to answer the question of, or you need to know what happened with company X that tried to fundraise in New York four years ago and didn't work out. And here's the name of the founder. Go seek them out. I mean, that could save somebody six to nine months worth of time. 
And for a small investment of my time, what I'm really trying to do is to have somebody walk away from that going like, wow, that, that guy was actually really helpful, helped make my company better. And when I do, you know, finalize this pitch and, and feel like I really have something, that's the person I want on my cap table. And if I could accomplish that, because of, you know, the stage that I'm investing, it's not like I can go screening pitch book or crunch base and finding the deals. The companies barely exist at the time that I write a check. So I need them seeking me out. And, and so if I can make that impression on somebody, whether, you know, one-on-one or on a panel or, or anything else like that, that's enormously helpful for my deal flow. And look, I don't have a business unless I have deal flow. The second thing is there are a lot of structural barriers that don't improve the quality of my portfolio, right? So we all have networks that look like ourselves. That is just the nature of the way the world works. Um, I probably know more bald white guys with beards than you do. And so, you know, it's, uh, it, it's just a thing about, um, you know, kind of society. But I don't necessarily think that bald white guys with beards are better returning part of the asset class than anybody else does, right? So I want to make sure that any of the things like warm intros or uh, alumni mentoring programs or, or, you know, all of the things that um, are, are hurdles for certain folks to get access to people like me that don't actually make my deal flow better. I, I want to get rid of those as much as possible. So I want to, that's why my email address is on the site. That's why I do these events and sessions. And that's why I'm willing to hop on a podcast. So at least if nothing else, it gives somebody the opportunity to say, hey, I listened to your podcast. You said something specific. I had a question about it. That's what my non-cold email is about. Like it's, I, I know who I'm writing. I listen, I took the time to listen to your stuff and uh, can we talk? And, and I want to be able to put stuff like that out there. For anybody who's listening, uh, if you want to learn how I made this podcast and you're thinking about having to show yourself, I'm doing a free class. So just uh, reach out to me on LinkedIn or through the website and uh, you can get into our free class to learn how to build a show. I want to go back to this. Uh, for people trying to understand if they're a good fit for you um, in New York City, less than 750 range, what, what kind of checks are you writing? Like between what and what is kind of your average bite size? Yeah, so I write about 350K check. Now, that could take many forms. Because some of you might be listening and say, oh, I don't know, seed rounds are getting bigger. They like three or four million dollars. You said you were leading. like, how do you how do you lead a three million dollar seed round with a 350K check? So my checks, you know, kind of come in two forms. Um, sometimes it's just me and a couple of angels and it's 500K in total or 750 or something like that. And, you know, today we call that a pre-seed round or, um, you know, sometimes it's friends and family. And I just happen to be the one sort of institutional in the bunch who's treating you like a real company and sitting down for meetings and stuff like that. I've also this year led to $3 million plus rounds, and I call that the flypaper term sheet. And so you're, you're out and about, you're trying to raise, you're getting all sorts of interest, but no one's really willing to lead or roll up their sleeves and give you that term sheet. They're interested, right? They just want to make sure that somebody who's been around a bit is, um, you know, doesn't think this is too crazy. And so what I find is um, I know the price I want to pay. 
uh, I'll put out a term sheet that says, hey, um, I see you're raising $3 million. Here's the price. I'm putting in $350. let us go source the rest together. And, you know, in one of those deals, I've got two larger funds than mine who each have written a million dollar plus check. One of them is relatively passive in the round. The other is is fairly active. And uh, after the round closed, we decided to sort of call that fund a co-lead. But there's no rule about what size check your lead needs or or anything like that. To me, it's who's writing the terms and who's doing the work. And, and I'm willing to do both. The last thing I read was, do you have about 23 million in AUM? Is that... Uh, no, it's more than or... so, uh, it's 38 or almost 38. So there's oh, three, that's great. Three, three funds. There's uh, two funds. The last two funds are about $15 million and the first one was eight. Union Square is such a big name in the field, but for people listening today who don't come for venture capital, can you talk to them a little bit about why Union Square is such a big deal? Yeah, sure. It's, it's funny. Uh, a friend of mine introduced me to their, their little brother a couple of years back who was interested in getting into venture. And he asked me, um, would you recommend that I start out my venture career at a brand name firm like you did? Now, Union Square Ventures has backed Twitter and Tumblr and Indeed and Coinbase and, and all of these sort of, you know, household names. And they're one of the most terrifically successful venture capital firms uh, really ever. And but when I went and joined the fund, I was on the institutional limited partner side. So they were pitching me uh, at the General Motors Pension Fund. And you have to understand, like in 2004, uh, New York's tech scene was like tumbleweeds and and boarded up houses and you know I mean the 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 late nineties dot com bust uh, you know hit, hit us hard because you know at least in the valley you had companies like uh, eBay or Cisco or what have you who had already been established and that you could sort of retreat to if your if your late nineties dot com startup sort of failed you could go work for existing larger tech companies that were that were in the valley our ecosystem here was new and so when the dot coms blew up in the late 90s in new york kind of the whole space blew up and so there really wasn't anything in the way of startups and venture come you know uh sort of 2004 now um Union Square was led by two partners who had, you know, previous track records, um, Fred Wilson and, and, and Brad Burnham. And, and Fred was part of the, one of the more successful late 90s uh, New York area funds. But he had that similar track record of, you know, upfront success. And then some of those companies didn't work out towards the end. Um, but they weren't a household name. They weren't national name in, in, in venture. Um, and so... You know, it was funny because working for the General Motors Pension Fund, I remember having this discussion with my my mom who didn't think it was such a good idea to leave such a big safe company like General Motors to go to this some dinky little two-person startup that, you know, she'd never heard of. Um, well, of course, you know, you know, GM eventually declared bankruptcy and 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 Union Square became one of the, the, the top VC funds out there. But it was a big risk at, at the time, both in terms of, you know, firm risk of not joining a brand name firm. But that's what enabled me to get in the door. 
right? When they were looking for somebody junior, and I was frankly the only applicant uh, because they didn't have a, a brand name firm. It was the first person they talked to. I said, I'd you know, be interested in finding out what you're looking for, the junior person. They said, you want to come find out what we're looking for? And that was basically the whole uh, conversation. And, and they have grown tremendously since then. Um, but also geographic risk, right? To decide that instead of moving to the Valley, I was going to, you know, plant my venture roots here in New York. Um, I mean, that it's been the biggest wind at my back in my career because my value to the venture ecosystem has always been that the guy that's been plugging away in the early stage in New York for a long time and, and knows everyone if not for the just the fact that I've just been around and, and doing it a long time. I, I The first New York Tech meetup that I ever went to was in February of 2005. And I think there were like 25 of us in the back of Scott Heiferman's offices at meetup. And like that was the tech community at the time. It's incredible to imagine how far it's gone now. When you think about both the time of the pension fund and Union Square, what are some of those lessons that you've brought with you that, that are still showing up for you, you know, 15 and 20 years later? One of the things I realized is you, you just have to be willing to make an ask, right? Because you don't know what is possible. When I was at the pension fund, I actually got that out of a high school internship. Uh, senior year, third trimester, we'd sort of already applied to our colleges and, and uh, you know, we were able to do this instead of going to, to, you know, kind of blow off senior year classes kind of thing. And the internship was supposed to end. It was supposed to end in June, and I was doing real people's work at the time, and and I just said, hey, you know, I know you hire interns. I I know um, I'm sort of past the deadline here for your regular internship program, but like the people I'm working with don't want their work back. Would you hire me over the summer? I'm, I'm you know, I'm not just photocopying. I'm doing real stuff, and and they said yes, and I worked there all throughout college. I, I went to Fordham, so I was able to take the subway back and forth and, and work there during the school year and, and, and put four years in before I put in another four working in their private equity and venture group full-time. Um, so it wasn't waiting for a program that to apply to. It was just basically saying, hey, will you hire me? Have I, have I done enough? Um, and same with for Union Square Ventures too, right? There was no job posting. Uh, I had met Fred and Brad on a pitch, and uh, I saw in their deck that they just had a little box on their org chart for junior person. I said, what, what does a junior person even do? Um, and and because I was willing to make that ask, that's what started the conversation. The other thing I got a really early lesson on was um, by putting your thinking out there, it can make the conversation start out in a much more productive place. So Fred Wilson started his now famous AVC blog um, in November of 2003. I actually started blogging three months later um, in, in you know early February 2004. And it was actually my blog that uh, Fred credited for... Um, them making the offer because they were able to read up on how I was thinking. It was sort of my uh, my portfolio as a knowledge worker. And they say, hey, you know, I like the way this this kid thinks. Uh, maybe we should think about you know sort of bringing him on. And I, I I've been writing you know somewhat consistently. I, I wish I had a, a more consistent approach to, to writing. 
for the last 18 years. And so, I mean, I notice it today on pitches, uh, potential investors into my fund. I mean, they come to me and say, hey, you know, I, I read your stuff. I saw what you were putting out there and I think I'd like to have a conversation. And so, so I know that anybody who sits across the table from me, it's a pretty high quality lead because they, they kind of have a sense of who they're going to talk to. Uh, and that's been incredibly valuable to me to, to, to put my stuff out there. Well, I would love to talk about this because I was reading your blog before, you know, to get ready for this interview. And, you know, for me, I, I'm interested in your thoughts about the advantages there. Because to me, it's almost, like, it's almost like credibility marketing. Like instead of having to say you think this or whatever, everybody can just see it. And it's like, you don't need to like, there's not as many introductions needed. There's not as, there's less sales needed because they can just check you out in advance. And, and it also gives that chance for you to get referred on to people who are, you are never going to come across because you've got this piece that got sent on ahead of you. Is that fair? How would you say it differently? Yeah, I, I think that, and, and also the other thing I would add is staying top of mind, right? So founders are more informed now than they've ever been. And so, you know, yeah, I, I'll wind up on most lists just given the fact of, you know, doing as many deals as I do and have been doing it for as long as I have been and being involved in some good companies. But, you know, most lists, but maybe not all, right? Maybe somebody forgets about me. And, um, you know, if you're putting stuff out there on a consistent basis, it's no knock on who you forgot about. But, but you know, there's just a lot of noise in the world, frankly. And, I know there are times where like people I know and I kind of feel like who should have thought of me earlier will be like, hey, you know, I just saw your post come through and I realized I didn't send you, you know, this deck of this company that I'm advising. I'm, I'm so sorry. Right. And I, I totally get it. Right. Because the world's a busy place. And, you know, I have a 13 month old at home. I, you know, lucky I can remember my own name. And so by Putting something out there consistently, you're just bringing yourself, um, you know, back top of mind um, and, and also being real specific because I think we assume that our network kind of knows what we're up to and knows exactly who to send to us, right? I mean, you gave your bio at the beginning, um, but are you, 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 you put together some, some, some real estate deals, but like, you didn't say specifically that you are looking for a certain type of investor or all of that sort of stuff, right? But you might put out or might say in a conversation, you know, I was having a conversation with a new investor and it reminded me of uh, these are the types of investors who are, are best suited for a real estate fund or whatever. And somebody in your network might, might go, oh. I didn't realize that you were raising for this vehicle or whatever, because you didn't specifically come out and say it. And especially in our world of, you know, fundraising, uh, regulations and all of that sort of stuff to be able to say, let me tell you about a conversation I had, which is typical of what I do. It's sort of a reminder of like, I'm willing to do this for other people. I do this all the time. Send me more people like this one. That's the sort of no. Slide. That is that is such a great point. Look, we just we just took on a couple 
we're we're waiting on a property right now just south of Jackson Hole. And we're, you know, hopefully the L'Oreal's will get back to us next week and and we'll add this on it. But to your point, like, so the couple, because we're just ramping up that fund. So just kind of some friends and family money in. And uh, the the couple who just got in last month, it was because I was talking about some other stuff we were doing and and it came up and it's like, hey, we've got a way where we can get, you know, we're actually sawmilling our own lumber. So we're like our building costs are literally half of the competition. And so even if we only make the same money as them, we've got double the profit margin, you know, and it's uh, hypothetically here, right? And And it is that kind of like, it's hard for somebody to buy from you if they don't know you're selling something, right? Like, uh, it's such a good point. And I think too, like, um, you know, for you, that reward of having the best deal flow in the city, I mean, that is that is a competitive advantage. And like, you've got all these things, you've got all these things going for you, you're positioned well, all these things. But like you said, even your own friends might have their own 13-month-old and they didn't think of you. And so that that consistent reminder, like, I will say, like, to me, podcasting is a little bit lame because we have such a terrible feedback loop on, I know how many people download it, but I don't know if they liked it. I don't know what part they listened to. You know, there's, the analytics sure are just- i get an email occasionally. Yeah, right? Um, the analytics are barely showing up a little bit. And that's why we're switching to YouTube right now. Like, we're launching YouTube, TikTok, Instagram Reels, everything with these clips and stuff is so that we can start to have a feedback loop. And what's funny is like, I've only put out two so far. And I have people who I haven't heard, who I haven't worked with for six or seven years reaching out to me. Hey, I, I saw your thinking about, we should really catch back up. You know, so uh, anyways, I'm in agreement of your methodology there. For sure. And you know, the other thing is too, for me specifically, and you know, who knows who has the best deal flow or whatever. Um, but I, I do have some of the earliest deal flow. And I, I think I have that specifically because one of the, the things that I'm constantly putting out there is that it's never too early, that um, I, I think I come off as somebody who, who is, you know, whatever the, the opposite of pretentious is that like, hey, I know your stuff's half broken, duct taped together, you know, whatever. Um, let's just come talk about it. Like, let me, you know, kind of, uh, cut through it. Best uh, introduction that I have gotten is when someone that I passed on recently says, hey, um, you may not remember this, but you, you passed on our deal. We're going to prove you wrong. Here's how awesome we are. But you were the only person to ask us like really insightful questions. You, you're the person who gave us the best feedback the engagement with you made us better. You asked really tough and direct questions. You cut right to the heart of it. And I told my friend that um, he should come and talk to you first because you were just really direct and you, you kind of cut right through it. You had a different way of looking at things. And it's funny, I just got off the phone with a friend of mine, somebody who, you know, I, I joke around that I'm in venture because I have like no real skills or talent because if I, I would, I'd be building a company or, or whatever. But one of the most talented acquisition marketers I know who is so disciplined and so incredibly good about what she does, like literally just asked me to be her coach, right? And I, my mind is like still totally blown from this because what she was basically saying is like, I know how to do it. I just need somebody to help me focus 
and to help clarify the decision making and to cut through it. And I, I think like so many times I hear feedback from the things that I write about whatever. It's like, hey, what you wrote helped me think about something. And that's really what a good investor is doing. I mean, we're not there day to day. We're not doing the work. Like you're doing the hard work, but the helping you focus on what's important is really the, probably the most valuable thing I can do. That and probably introduce you to a hire. But, but I love this um, because you could just take out ads. You could be top of mind because your logo is everywhere. But this kind of like actually writing your blog, what I'm calling credibility marketing here, like it's more than an ad. It's more than like, oh yeah, I've seen that logo everywhere, right? There's like, there's a depth to it that you don't get from an advertisement by, you know, paying the price of consistency, by paying the price of like real thoughtfulness. It stands out from somebody else whose logos on the lanyard at the event or something, right? Yes, but I, I think what's important too is I happen to like to write. And I happen to be comfortable sort of putting my stuff out there. You know, and I've put some stuff out there. Like I am probably relatively left-leaning. And I know I am relative to the venture capital community. And, you know, some of the stuff that I might put out maybe isn't the most popular or it's a little controversial or uncomfortable or, or what have you. Um, and, but I'm comfortable with that. And, and I, I'd be very careful to say that the way I do things is is good for everybody, uh, because you I, really I have, totally agree, right? I like, totally agree because I'm a yapper, hence the reason we're hence the reason that this is like, you know, I've done like 750 episodes talking, I haven't done 750 essays or articles or blog posts like you, right? I mean, I know you're way more over way more than that over 18 years, but but my point is like I do agree with you. Play to your strength, yeah. right? Um, but, but the principle of, you know, consistently trying to be helpful through other, trying to be helpful to others in a one-to-many type of way that's easy for you to stay top of mind for others and to, to do them a service by giving them a look behind the curtain because they weren't there with you at that last meeting. You know, that's, I feel like that's a genuine service. Well, and I actually think the job, and I like the fact that you use the word service, to me, it is a service job. You know, there's sort of a, a running joke that like, what is what is the typical thing a VC says? Like, how can I be helpful? And 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 I've been saying that long before it became a VC cliche uh, on Twitter. But um, but I really mean it, right? It is like literally, like, what is the thing that is giving you an issue? And and can I figure out? I'm I'm sort of a problem solver by nature. Um, which creates some very funny dynamics between me and my wife because there are things that she will share and she's not looking for me to solve a problem. And so I have to remember, well, you're just sharing, right? Right. And you don't want me to fix it. Right. Okay. You sure you don't want me to fix it? No, no, no. I'm just sharing. It's like, okay. Because that is like so contrary to uh, my nature. I mean, I was walking down the hallway of my co working uh, space and, uh, there was somebody there who was just like having trouble with the lock on the door. And I was in the middle of a conversation with the founder and I had to stop to like help them fix the door because I just, I can't, I can't walk by somebody who's shimmying on a sliding door back and forth and just continue on down the hallway. And it really was sort of a splinter in my mind, but, um, but yeah, I, I, I think that's, um, you know, trying to scale that helpfulness is important. And I, I think the scale part, is actually a really helpful one too, because 
that's something as a solo GP that is incredibly important to me. Because, you know, there's only one of me and I, I don't have a ton of time. And so, for example, like one of the other things that we do is um, I run these dinners. I've been doing this for like 10 years. And we go neighborhood by neighborhood. We split the cost of a chef and the host eats for free. And we do it in people's apartments. And it's all people from the tech and startup community. And chef comes in, food's great. But it's, you know, 10, 12 people sitting around a table in a really intimate environment. You know, somebody's apartment, right? They get kids' toys, you know, dog hair, you know, whatever. And um, the, the half-life, the social capital half-life on a shared meal in that scenario is very, very long. But it's also like, I've had other VCs come to me and they, they'll ask me about that. And I say, wait a second, how often do you do that? And I said, well, you know, once a month, sometimes we'll even squeeze more than one in. I say, wait, you, you organize like 15 dinners a year? How big is your team? I said, well, it's you know, me and my assistant. And how do you do that? We tried to organize, a, you know, one dinner. It took us like however many months to plan and all that sort of stuff. I said, yeah, that's, that's because you tried to organize one dinner. When you try to organize 15, you do them in a completely different way. You eliminate all the friction to scaling, right? You're not printing up name tags. You're not, you're being much more flexible on the invite list, right? It doesn't need to be the, the CEO of Squarespace that comes to the dinner. It's cool if it's the VP of engineering. Hell, it's cool if it's the junior iPhone developer that comes to that. Because seven years later, that person is the CTO at some other company. And, and that's a valuable relationship because I can ping them to be like, hey, I don't know if you remember, you came to the Greenpoint dinner. And, I, you know, I saw that you were raising money or, or vice versa. And so um, that, that scalability is really important, too, because we all have, you know, kind of limited time. It, it is interesting, though, uh, the, those extra efforts that aren't just like everyone else's. You know, like that is a dinner that those people probably won't go to another dinner just like that this year. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's, yeah. it stands, you know, it sets apart. With a bunch of strangers in somebody else's apartment, especially not a VC dinner. VC dinners aren't like that. To your point, like my, my little version of this, I just ran an experiment on this year. Okay. So this morning I got off the phone with a friend. We'd been part of this CEO club together and he's making way more money than me. But uh, what, what it's kind of transformed into is he called it like a glorified travel agency. Okay. And it's like, it's 7,500 bucks for you and your wife to go to Paris for four days. Right. And he's like, that's, that's a real premium, you know? And sure. If you work at a big bank and they're covering, they're covering the bills, like, Hey, if you're not paying, you know, you can see why a lot of executives go on that. Right. But it's like, he owns the company. So he's like, ah, it's tough for me to pay for those. Right. And, um, I was like, you know, earlier this year, I just invited guests off the show and some local CEOs and like eight of us got together in an Italian restaurant, had our own table, but it was all kind of like people that I knew would want to connect each other. There was no agenda other than come meet some cool people. It was so cheap. It's basically free doing like, it's, that's not an, it was not an expensive event. It was hand curated off my text messages. You know what I mean? And, uh, they were all saying, can we do this every quarter? When are you doing this again, Jess? You know what I mean? And, and um, it, wasn't, it wasn't a production. You know, my, my assistant helped with a little bit of the scheduling and I sent some text messages. And like, 
our, I was telling you before we started about our new service with this of take a CEO, help them build their own show like mine, right? Over the weekend, so on Friday, I had the guy on the show, uh, their company's called Loan Pro. They just hit the billion dollar valuation mark. Inspirational guy. And he was, I was asking him like about his thoughts on product market fit. Like what, what is real true product market fit? And he was saying, don't just sell them the solution they're trying to buy from you. Go upstream and get much more into their problem and get much more worried about their problem than can you close a sale. And you'll find out there's other things you can do for them for next to nothing. Or maybe they need to buy something different. And so I'm sitting there driving home from the, from the interview thinking, like, okay, what else can we give our people that's like, you know, not super expensive for us to provide, but is a drastic increase in value. And I'm like, we need to be teaching all of our clients who have a show how to run their own like thought leader dinners. And uh, I kind of like your idea better than mine of like, don't even go to the restaurant, like bring the chef to you. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny because the whole shtick kind of self-selects for a certain personality, right? Yeah, you have to pay for the dinner. It's 50 bucks, right? And, and you know, and for the dinner in New York, that's actually pretty good. <laughs> pretty good. Um, but people don't blow these things off. The way that, you know, when Silicon Valley Bank, you know, hosts some dinner at a private room at a restaurant, people blow those dinners off left and right and don't even think about it. And they, they don't even realize that they, like, they just got a free $150 dinner that you just didn't even go to. But you, 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 you're invested in this a little bit, right? You, you don't come with the expectation that because I'm at a venture fund, albeit a really tiny one, if they understood, if they understood the way, uh, you know, management fees work, uh, they'd understand why I'm not paying for everybody's dinner. Well, um, but, uh, you know, it, it's sort of like, yeah, we're all sharing in this thing. And yeah, it's fine if it's at your tiny little apartment. I mean, I remember this one person hosted a dinner I walked in and she's like, oh, I was so excited you asked me to host this dinner. I love hosting. We just had 60 people for my birthday party here the other day. And I'm, I'm looking around. I'm like, where in God's name would you put 60 people in this apartment? And we were really cozy and we were 12. Um, but that's part of it, right? It's, it's just, um, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's intimate. It's, uh, it's human. Um, it's, it's not pretentious at all. Um, you know, maybe somebody has got the folding table on the end of it. Uh, you know, none of the cups match because, you know, who in a New York city apartment has, you know, 10 matching uh, pieces of uh, table settings and, and, and stuff like that. Uh, but it just kind of works. And I tell you, you know, the only organized aspect that we have around the conversation, we ask everybody to go around, say, who are they? How are they spending their time? And what's their favorite place in the neighborhood? And the conversation of 10 or 12 people just going around and talking about their favorite place in the neighborhood, be it a spot in the park or a restaurant or whatever, normally takes up about two thirds of the dinner. I mean, it's, it's because once, you know, somebody mentions the new Portuguese restaurant that opened up the street, it was like, oh, have you, did you ever go to the old place that that guy had? Yeah, that's over here. You know, whatever happened to that, this other thing, right? 
New Yorkers love to talk about their favorite spots. They love to talk about, um, you know, how neighborhoods are changing and the newest thing and, and whatever. And, and, you know, it's funny because just that simple structure when applied to something where people have something in common, right? Like neighborhoods self-select a little bit, right? The, the Park Slope dinner is really different than the Greenpoint dinner and it's really different than the financial district dinner. And, it's, uh, and, and so the way that people answer that question in Greenpoint is, is very different than in other places, right? You do that in the West Village and it's a younger crowd and they're all living in, you know, way too expensive shoe boxes and, and, you know, save for the dinner host who's been living there for 35 years or what have you. Um, and all of those people are talking about all the cool places they spend with their copious amounts of spare time. Well, you do that same dinner in Park Slope. It's where do you take your kids to? It's where, you know, um, what happens during date night. And, and, you know, nobody talks about the place in the neighborhood you spend, you know, until two o'clock in the morning with, because that's not what's happening in that neighborhood. Right. So it's, uh, it's, it's a really great way to, to connect to people and it, and it's pretty fitting for new york too because we're not a one industry town and that's another thing too that i think the role that i like playing as a as an investor in new york is vcs are like the glue in a lot of these startup communities because we have an excuse to talk to almost anyone right we'll talk to a founder we'll talk to another investor we'll talk to an institutional investor we'll talk to somebody who's running an accelerator you know, uh, somebody who's running some kind of bio lab, somebody who is um, experimenting with, uh, you know, AI-driven image creation, right? Uh, you know, for any of you who haven't played with uh, like Dolly or Dream Studio or any of these things, you spend hours telling the computer to to draw you these unbelievable images. Well, in a place like New York, there's that that taps into the whole art community and all these people who don't care what venture capital is or don't you know don't know what Y Combinator is or all of that sort of stuff and that's what kind of you know kind of keeps it interesting here so um you know making making my pitch for people to come live in New York when you think about all the bad pitches you've heard over the years versus the really great ones um or or you think about the pitches of those investments that ended up being really great. Um, what kind of advice do you have for entrepreneurs looking for funding, especially given the climate right now in the, you know, fall of 2022, a lot of, a lot of spigots are getting turned off and things like that. Well, so one comment I'll make about just the environment now, if you actually look at the third quarter numbers of how much venture capital was invested, it's sort of on par with like 2018 or 2019, right? So I, I wouldn't characterize necessarily as a turned off spigot. I would okay. say the- Turned down uh, a little? Yeah. From last I mean, year? The, the, the spigot fell off. And if you've ever had the bad experience of, um, you know, unscrewing a spigot too much and having it come off in your hand and spraying your face, I mean, that's literally what we had this year. So um, yes, if you can get it back to- you know, at least just being on the faucet and, and able to turn it to a, a normal amount of stream, uh, yes, that, that does represent a significant decrease, but um, it's, it's much closer to kind of where it should be. I mean, if you take a firm like mine, 
for whom like you see 2000 things in a year and maybe you do eight to 10 of them. Well, maybe last year the number was 15. I mean, it wasn't necessarily for me, but, but which may have been 50% more activity than they're used to, but it's, 15 out of 2,000 really lowering the bar that much compared to 10 out of 2,000? Like, I'm not even sure that you can perceive or feel that difference. Uh, so I, I, I kind of don't think people should worry too much about the environment unless they are a later stage company that has gotten their, their valuation up where they can't justify it. And then, then you got a lot to worry about in your environment. But when you're raising your first round, the goal is still, you know, try and convince a million dollars or whatever number you're raising to, to back you. And it's just as hard today as it was last year as it was. It's just still really hard. Like, it's really hard and most people don't raise. And, and it should work like that, because most ideas are not that good. And most people are not prepared enough to do one of the hardest things to manifest a company from, from nothing. Um, I divide up founders who pitch me into three categories. And, and the first divider is smart and not smart, right? Well, that's an easy one. You only want to back people who are smart, right? And everybody considers themselves to be smart. But, you know, there are certain people who can just process faster, learn faster, um, and kind of hold more things in, in memory. Um, you just have a, a better skill set. And those people sort of stand out. Right? And, and, you know, it's funny. I, I do think that most people, most entrepreneurs sort of self-select for having that skill set. You, you don't often see somebody who is not capable thinking that they are capable um, and trying their hand at starting a company. There are some people who are like, you know, I'm comfortable doing this particular job, not taking this kind of risk. Like this is, this is my bread and butter. This is my skill set, And, and kind of to some extent, like entrepreneurs feel like they're capable. And so they go do it. The bigger difference is among that, that capable, that smart category is who has done their homework and who hasn't. And, and the who hasn't category is people fall into that for two reasons. One is it's actually really hard to figure out how much homework is enough, right? There's very many times people say, I talked to a lot of people about this and they all love this idea. Well, that's not a really um, in-depth process. That's not really, you know, cutting, cutting it in terms of um, a real serious process. Um, and there's other folks who are just, they know they're smart and they're maybe a little overconfident. They're like, well, whatever the answer is, I know I'll be able to overcome it. Or I, I, I don't really need to do the user experience testing or the financials because I, I just know there's a lot of money there. And it's, it's a little bit of overconfidence and a little bit of intellectual laziness. Um, whereas the other day I, I took a pitch from a, a founder in the CPG space and I, and I mentioned another investment that I had made in a founder who was really, really knowledgeable. So before my second meeting with this founder, the founder that I referenced who could be a good um, reference, uh, who could be a good resource for her, texted me and said, hey, you know, I, uh, I talked to Isabel yesterday. She seems really smart. 
I never made the intro. Actually, she just recorded the name, found this guy out, found the connection to him, reached out, made a compelling enough pitch, got him on the phone, learned a bunch of stuff. Didn't need me. Didn't wait for me to make an intro, right? That's somebody who's done enough homework, right? Because they, anytime I mention a company, they already know it. Like she knows who I'm talking about. Uh, she's, she's reached out. She's learned those lessons. That's somebody who goes in saying, most of what I need to know, I don't know yet. I think I have a kernel of an idea, but I have a lot to learn. I'm going to approach entrepreneurship as someone who has a lot to learn. And I, that really stands out to me because um, uh, the, the people who are successful are the ones who learn fast enough. There's a really great article that I always reference, and I, I probably haven't read it in 10 years. Um, it was about the, uh, I guess, 2012 election um, or 2008 election about like the, the profile of who would make a good president. It was like whenever you know Mitt Romney ran against uh, Barack Obama, there was this, you know, do we want like a business leader or an intellectual type? And the outcome of this article was like, no one's prepared to be president. It's a unique job, but the people who are successful are the ones who learn fast enough. How quickly can you learn Congress and dealing with Congress? How quickly can you learn about how to deal with the media? How quickly can you learn how to, um, you know, assemble a cabinet and work functionally with them and all this sort of stuff. And it's the people who take too long to learn who have really difficult pregnancies. And so it's like, you know, uh, presidencies. It's, so it's like uh, speed to, to learning is a real critical mark. And I, I, I think that's ultimately what I'm uh, looking for. So it's not, you know, whose pitch is flashier, but it's um, who do I feel like really did the work going into this that is most well prepared, um, and, and and the right pitch will show that. Uh, I, I'm interested. This idea of homework fascinates me. Um, I got to have Steve Blank on the show a couple of times, and I'm such a such a fan of his. Like, you know, I'd read his books, and you know, most people are familiar with the Lean Startup Movement based on his methodology as well, but having him on the show was like, wow, this guy lives it way deeper than the books tell you. He's like, yeah, if you take my class at Stanford, you have to go, you have to go interview a hundred of your ideal clients in 10 weeks. Right. I'm like, oh, wow. You know, I think, I think a lot of us like start patting ourselves on the back if we get into double digits. Right. (laughs) Right. And then he's like, and this is the part that just got me. He's like, unless it was my company, when I started my companies, I would do 300. You're like, that doesn't come across in the book. Wow. That, that level of intensity, he's like, you know, when I hired, it came out because we were talking about marketing firms. He's like, I'll interview marketing firms, but like, I'm only going to hire somebody who knows more about what I'm doing than I do. And I do 300 customer interviews before I look at, at bringing on the marketing firm. And you're just like, wow, the, the principle is is the same, but the intensity he lives it is so much deeper. You know, uh, I just read The Mom Test by Rob Fitzpatrick. Do you know that book? No, I don't. It's so good. I, you would probably love it. Okay. He basically has taken the Steve Blank process and kind of like put some meat on the bones of like, okay, you know you should do it, but like, what do you actually do? And how many calls? And do you set up a call before the call? And he's just like, 
it's like the user manual of like kind of like the dummies guide or something you know like it's just like the the usefulness per page density is really high anyways i'm having him on the show in a couple weeks i'm really excited but the, the mom test i bet you'd like i think that's 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 true you know one thing you you were saying about the the depth of interviews and stuff like that if i ask a question that's sort of um hey how is this company that's doing something similar but not 100% the same as you did or or this company that you are holding up as successful in another area how are they doing if your answer is well they just raised 24 million dollars which you found because you looked them up on crunchbase that is like scratching the surface of what you need to know versus if somebody's like yeah you know it's kind of a mixed bag over there. I just talked to uh, the woman who's there, uh, who was their head of sales up until six months ago, and she said that the problem that they were encountering breaking through this revenue level was X, Y, and Z, and, and that you'd only get from a one-on-one -on -one interview with somebody who's no longer at the company and not something that, that you could read on a Medium post or a Substack or all that sort of stuff. Like, that's somebody who's doing their homework. Wow, that's such a good example. Okay, any more examples? Yeah, that, that's the one that really uh, strikes me. I think the other is um, anytime I say that, you know, uh, you should talk to so-and-so, and the person responds, yeah, I have a call with them next week, right? Like, if we're in New York and we're in the tech community and, and we're kind of running in sort of similar circles or whatever. And it's fairly obvious who at least a handful of the people you probably should talk to about this. Um, knowing that you, you know, already had this discussion. Actually, it's funny when I um, first, uh, when I first invested in the wing, it was originally it was a slightly different concept called Refresh Club, which was, in my mind, akin to what Equinox was looking to do with some of their spaces. It wasn't just about going to the gym. It was, you know, they, they had a little bit of food set up and, and it was a place to sort of go between work and home. Um, I said, you know, but, but this is kind of competitive with, with Equinox. And Audrey Gelman, the founder, was like, oh, yeah, the... I forget exactly who it was, but the, the COO of Equinox is an angel investor of ours. I was like, oh, okay. Well, that kind of that kind of answers the question. Or, or I got this pitch from a company that was helping their technology helped um, to de-ice planes, and the guy who runs all of de-icing for JetBlue was like an angel investor in the, in the company. Right? It's like, well. That guy, there's no one who knows more about de-icing than that guy, and he's an investor, right? So um, it, it, it's that level of, um, yeah, you're absolutely talking to the right people. One, one of the things I tell people is, imagine if you had to put on a conference on this topic. Do you know who all of the speakers would be? The sort of top 50 of Single track, three people on a panel, eight sessions, two days, you know, do the math. It's like 50 people. And, and 50 people are like, there's a keynote who gets the tickets sold, but doesn't actually say anything in their keynote. And there's the, you know, 
mid-level person who did the workshop that was the most compelling thing and they'll tell you exactly how it's done do you know all of those people have you identified them that's the you should know enough about your space to throw a really good conference uh, a two-day single track conference that's kind of my bar i think that's such a great test like as you're talking you know we've been lucky enough to have a couple of pretty great journalists on the show and like as you're talking i'm thinking like investigative journalist level yeah yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know, like that's a great example. Listen, I know we're kind of we're kind of closing in on our time here. Uh, maybe before we go, what's what's one more tip that you think um, you know people who are starting something, people who are getting ready to raise? What's something that maybe isn't all over the the uh, the tech literature and the business news these days? Or what's what's a principle that you feel like isn't emphasized as much as it could be that that really stands out to you as top one i think one of the best skills that a founder or, or, or one thing that sort of differentiates like top founders from everybody else is the ability to understand when a meeting is real i have seen so many founders take meetings with people who are essentially paid to take meetings Meetings that are clearly not going anywhere, given the stage of company you're at, right? You, you meet with like, you know, the GE innovation, head of the innovation, whatever at GE, right? It's just some title of somebody who's supposed to, you know, keep the company abreast of the zeitgeist and, and you know, meet with all the startups and figure out who they should buy and all of that sort of stuff, right? But like you're a company that's making AI-driven medical imaging software or something like that, right? And you're like, oh, maybe GE can be an investor. It's like, dude, you know the size of company that you would need to be for GE to be to do anything with you whatsoever? I don't know exactly what their minimum threshold, but I know it's when you have more than two employees. Uh, that they, they interact with you, right? And to not be able to tell that, like, this person who's in, the, in this, like, innovation group, which is more PR probably than anything else, is not someone you're going to sign a deal with, right? And that's that's a lot of the, you know, if you're a major leaguer versus a minor leaguer in terms of being a uh, a founder or you're you're talking to a venture firm that, you know, writes $30 million checks on average, but they tell you, yeah, we occasionally do some seed. Yeah, you do some seed when the the woman who took the company public last year is doing her next thing. And, and you know, of course you write her a seed check because she made, you know, she returned your fund the last time around. Like, that's who gets that seed check, not you. No. And you got to be smart enough to understand that, like, hey, I'm out of my depth here in this meeting, or they're not ready for somebody like me. When you see a founder and they've talked to somebody like that two or three times, you're just like, oh, this is, this is not it. This is not having a founder. I think it about like in so in our you know, real estate private equity world, when I get these calls from people who are like, we represent these these pension funds, and would you like to have a meeting? I was like, no, no, because you know who they are. Well, but no, but because we are nowhere near the scale that oh, any pension fund, like we're just like, yeah, I, I would. I would like to have that meeting in six years. Can we have that meeting? Can we schedule that now for uh, 2028? Because I want that meeting. But 
like, wh why would we have that meeting now? Do you know what I mean? Like, like you cannot you place no to, to that meeting. Is you gotta you gotta be willing to say no to a meeting. Well, and and like I think it comes from saying yes to the wrong meeting a hundred times. You know, I like the wishful thinking over optimistic Jeff was like, you know, you get those meetings where like, hey, they can fill your entire fund if they say yes. And you're like, oh great, waste of time every time. And you're like, you just get sick of it. You're like, no, it's not worth it's not worth the gas money to drive to the meeting to waste my whole afternoon for something that has no chance of going anywhere. And, and be, and kind of like being okay with that. Right. Um, okay. La last question then really last question. What about when people are mixing and matching? Like they're almost like inventing a new category. Like they're, they're, yes, they have analogs. Like these guys kind of do this part of it. And these guys kind of do this part of it. And these guys kind of do this part of it. But like, there really is no true analog. Um, when you think about doing homework in that situation, where it is like, you know, objectively coming up with this, a, a service, an offering that, that doesn't exist elsewhere, how do you think about homework in that perspective where it's, there aren't nine competitors to compare against? Um, you know, it's interesting actually. I, I don't always think that like competitor comparisons are as useful as a lot of founders think, because for the most part, for the most part, you, most of these people are inventing somebody something that's a little new. So uh, half the time that I see somebody put a competitor slide up there, I'm like, I know why you put them, and I know you made this slide sort of out of obligation, or somebody told you you had to put a competition slide up there, but like, people are not choosing. Like, these guys don't do what you're trying to do. And you and I both know that, and you felt like you had to put something up there, right? So um, I, I do think there's always a sort of similarity in um, business structures, right? So uh, it's it's like, um, um, well, I don't know if this is a good example or not. There's a, a really interesting company um, called Canary uh, that is doing what I referred to the founder and it's funny because she told me that she had never thought about it this way but it's like enterprise go fund me and so you sort of imagine like you know you're, you're the gears are going like what what would enterprise go fund me be about there are uh companies like i think home depot was the example i think like home depot maybe it's lowe's one of those two companies like actually has an employee fund where it's, I think it's maybe funded by the founders or something like that for um, just when employees kind of, you know, when life happens, they, they get in trouble or they, you know, with like, I don't know, tornado comes roaring through their town. They, they, they make these disbursements sort of from the company. They're kind of donating to their employees. And, and um, you know, it's because uh, right now, like, companies don't really have a way to participate in all of the various GoFundMes that their underlying employees might handle. They don't even kind of know about them, right? Um, and so some companies are basically saying, hey, you know what? Like, we're, we're loyal to our people. We're going to have your back in such a way. So if you legitimately, like, have an issue, a family medical issue, whatever, you could sort of apply for this this fund that we have, you know, made our because you know companies do philanthropic donations, but um, they don't 
no one thinks about like donating to their own employees or the ones that sort of got them there, right? So there isn't a company that does this. And so when I was trying to wrap my head around, I was like, yeah, it's like, it's like enterprise GoFundMe. And once you kind of think about it in that terms now, yeah, I guess GoFundMe could be on the competition slide, but it, but it, right. Cause GoFundMe is never going to create that kind of portal and do all of the necessary employee checking and verification. It's like a whole other business, but we can, you know, it's a great place to start from um, an understanding perspective. And I think that's the useful thing. It's it's not so much like the box with like, we have all green checks and they have red X's and we're better than them. It's like, can you start me from a place of understanding? You're kind of like that company, but you're not exactly like them, but I'm 50% of the way there to understanding what it is that you do. And it's kind of an intellectual shortcut. And that's where it's useful. You know what that makes me think of? You, you just said half your life earlier in the show. Mm -hmm. So uh, my math says that you were born in 1980 like me. Is that, am I close? 79, yeah. 79, okay. So do you remember that cartoon from being kids, Voltron, where like oh, the yeah. multiple robots oh, get together, I right? I mean, like as you're talking, I'm thinking the Voltron. It's like, well, we're this much like GoFundMe and we're this much like right. employee benefits. You know, like, and you go like, hey, here's kind of our competitors, but we're kind of like the Voltron. We're kind right. of like the Voltron in between and like to give them that, like those anchors to mentally anchor to, but to also see the differentiation. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And even if it's not fair, just to be able to get Voltron in on a podcast is totally worth it. <laughs> right. At least um, we know that the Power Rangers robot is essentially the Voltron robot. And, and when you first saw that, I remember my little cousin was like really into Power Rangers and it was wait a second, I've seen that that clip before. You don't even know where that came from. Yeah, Crazy. except that Power Rangers was lame and Voltron was awesome. Right. So, um, Okay, uh, we covered a lot of different things here. Where, where are the best places for people to find you online or to reach out to you? Sure. So I'm um, CEO NYC on Twitter. Uh, that's actually my initials. It's not like a corporate thing. Um, and... My uh, writing is, I, I have a sub stack. You know, I'm, I'm a little old school, like technically it's still a blog, although now it's kind of newsletter. So you can check out my writing at thisisgoingtobebig.com. But like everyone else, I have turned it into a sub stack newsletter. All the links are. But I think Twitter is probably the best place to start for me personally. Um, and then the firm is brooklynbridge.vc. And so you can see what I've invested in. You can do our Yeah. Program. How many investments so far? Um, oh, I just had a number the other day. I think we've hit a hundred. Yeah, we've definitely, uh, hit a hundred. So I'm doing roughly about eight to 10 a year. Well, thanks for making time to do this. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. You bet. Bye everyone.